If you ask Sasha Siddhartha, there are three core barriers that have prevented consumers from living a healthier lifestyle, price, geography, and information. Now, as the co-founder and CTO of Thrive Market, Sasha is working to eliminate those barriers in order to provide consumers with healthier options, all at the click of a mouse. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Sasha discusses the role that Thrive Market plays in assisting consumers on their personal health journey and why the grocery industry is making big strides in e-commerce. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries. And today we have special guest, Sasha, what's going on? Hey, Ian. Nice to meet you. And uh, thanks for having me on board. Yeah, great to have you today. We are all about uh, healthy living made easy here uh, on IT Visionaries. And coincidentally, so is Thrive Market. So I'm super excited to talk about everything Thrive, about what you have under the hood from a technology perspective and get into your background. So let's get into it. How did you get started in technology in the first place? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I uh, I got to it what feels like a little late in the game compared to compared to what I see these days. So when I was in, in middle school and high school, you know, I was a big was a big gamer, so I always I always loved building building my own systems and hardware. Played a lot of computer games on both console and PC. And at some point along the way, uh, my uncle, who was a software engineer for basically his whole career, kind of needled me a little bit and said, "You know, why don't you why don't you sort of get up one of these days and actually build one of these instead of just just being just being a consumer, just consuming the content?" And I, and I spent some time thinking about that and. You know, this was in the in the mid to late nineties, and you know, obviously the the first dot com wave was at an all time high, and there were all these amazing stories about the great things that entrepreneurs and technology businesses were doing in the in the market. So that got me really excited. So you know, when it came time to to go to college, you know, I started in, started in ninety nine, so I ended up coming out to the West Coast and attended Stanford. And my goal coming into college was to learn how to be an entrepreneur in the technology space. And, you know, Stanford didn't have a, didn't have a business degree. You know, there were some, there were some other schools that had kind of dedicated programs for entrepreneurship, but at Stanford, the, the options were, were economics and, you know, a variety of technical disciplines, including computer science. So I started studying both of those at the same time, hoping that I'd sort of get the, get the business side down, get the technical side down and ended up really falling in love with the technical side, ended up completing both degrees, but found that I, I love the creative aspect of um, of software engineering and the ability to get out there and build things that add a real value and utility and joy to joy to people's lives. You know, coming out of of college, uh, obviously I graduated in '03, so between between when I went in in '99 and when I came out, the, the ecosystem had changed pretty dramatically after the first first dot com bust in, in 2000. So it was a really really tough time for anyone who wanted to even think about starting a business in the technology space at that time. And, you know, I was 20 years old and kind of brand new to the U.S. and, uh, and definitely much more risk-averse than I am today. So, you know, I was looking for, you know, a, a training ground where I could really start to hone my skills and, and, and develop my career in a, in a relatively disciplined way. So, you know, coincidentally at the time, is really just the big technology companies that were hiring at any scale. So found my way to a role in software engineering at Microsoft, and that's sort of wrote my path from there on out for the next several years. So ended up being a developer and a, an engineering manager across a variety of teams there. Uh, just learned an incredible amount when it came to best practices in, in building, building technology at a real scale and also you know, running, running engineering teams, technology teams. So that's really, that's really how things got started. You know, obviously, where I am today, the, the startup bug never quite left me. So ended up coming down to LA in 2011 and, and kind of founding my first business with a former, a former Microsoft colleague who was, who was locally uh, working as a venture capitalist at the time and was leaving his firm to go, go found this business. So 
that brought me to entrepreneurship and then you know, ran that business for three, three and a half years, went through, went through some M&A and then ended up meeting my business partners at Thrive Market and the rest is, rest is history. Yeah. So flash forward to today, tell us a little bit about what it means to be CTO of Thrive Market. Yeah. So we're a, we're a mid-sized grocery e-commerce company. Some folks may know mission of the business is to, is to make healthy living easy and accessible for everyone. We really want to be the leading online brand in the healthy and sustainable product space. So within that, my role as CTO is it's really, it's twofold. One is taking our business strategy and connecting it with a cohesive technology and digital product strategy. You know, what are the consumer facing experiences that we need to achieve the necessary business outcomes in a, you know, anything from a three month to a three year timeframe? And vice versa, how can we leverage technology and what's going on in the digital shopping space to inform our business strategy and evolve it in a, in a positive direction? So that's probably where I spend about 75% of my time. I have a product management user experience org and a, and a software engineering org that focuses on building out those, those consumer-facing pieces. The other half of my role is how do we empower the company itself through uh, use of software and systems? And that goes both for the, the technology org in terms of making sure that everything from internal software architecture to language choice to DevOps and software automation are in place, but also for the, the non-tech uh, departments within the business, ensuring that we have a, a cohesive technology strategy where we've got the right productivity tools, the right security posture, the right access and availability to data and analytics for everything from a customer service agent to a head of marketing to be able to make the both the best decisions for the business, but also to be able to, you know, just have a great workday and operate smoothly and efficiently. So it's it's balancing those two. And I have I have orgs that support um, internal enterprise applications and and orgs that support consumer facing product. Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, not to get on the soapbox here, but it just feels like there's so many people like you in startups now in this in the role of CTO that has kind of like your CIO hat or traditional CIO hat, or it's like internal IT or, or you know employee experience type stuff. And then you have like your product centric hat. And that role might be a CTO, it might be a CIO, it might be whatever, CDO. And we talk to folks all the time that have that same sort of thing where it's just the role of the technology leader in a company that is not inherently a technology company and yet has a massive digital technology footprint. It, it's just, it's such a dynamic spot right now. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, even even businesses that don't have a significant technology component when it comes to the consumer facing experience still need to leverage software to remain relevant and competitive in, in today's ecosystem, right? So the CIO part of the role is is almost universal across across all organizations. The other piece of this is that as in a startup environment, I think sort of to take the cliche, everyone wears lots and lots of hats. So ultimately when it's a very small organization, there's usually some person who takes on accountability to figuring out all the tech requirements, onboards the software, starts to figure out a systems and process, and then it kind of builds organically from there. So the interesting thing that I remember from the very early days of you know now two companies is that you know just by virtue of being in the role, I was exposed to kind of e-commerce enablement and technology enablement in such a wide variety of functions. It wasn't just the the software development piece; it was you know, some of the digital marketing, it was a lot of our operations and fulfillment infrastructure, you know, just by virtue of having a small team and everyone needing to, to collaborate and figure it out. Those are areas that, that I had the opportunity to dive into quite deeply in the very early phases, you know, at Thrive in particular, obviously the, the really nice thing is we've had the opportunity to scale really fast as a business and as an organization. And I've had the ability to specialize over time and we've been able to bring in just amazing domain experts to run some of those other areas. But it's very common to your point to see the intersection of use of technology in a, in a broad range of applications across every function of the business these days because just everything runs on software now. Yeah. And I want to get into both sides of that uh, piece of Thrive, both internal and, and product side. But before we get into that, I'm curious, like, what's the size and the, and the scope of, of what you're doing at Thrive right now? How many folks, and I know you can't share exact specifics, but are, are using the platform um, and like what are the types of things that they're looking for from a day-to-day -day basis uh, from Thrive Market? Yeah, so we're in the, you know, we're in the high, high hundreds of thousands, approaching a million members right now. 
you know, at its core, there are consumers are looking for two things from us. One, you know, there's a there's a strict utility play in terms of us making sure they can get their healthy groceries, you know, quickly, easily, in a timely manner at great value. The other more more interesting part is, you know, we feel very strongly that our consumers see us as a trusted partner in their journey through healthy living. And that comes down to you know, everything from curation of our site so that they can shop by over 150 diets and values based on their, their dietary goals, their lifestyle preferences, their, their social values. It comes down to you know, offering something like carbon neutral shipping so that they can, you know, feel really good about the purchases they're making without having a negative impact on the environment. It's about really layering in value add content and educational information so that we can inspire them around products and categories they may not be familiar with and really facilitate an amazing experience around discovery. So those are areas that are strategically important to us that we're investing deeply in, which we feel are essentially the direction in which uh, a lot of online shopping is going, but certainly in the, in the grocery category. Yeah, 100%. I mean, the market is clearly trending this way. I think for a long time, we just weren't really informed enough as consumers. We didn't really know what was out there. Now we do know it's out there and there's all sorts of really cool uh, snack makers, food makers, drink makers, figuring out ways to be more sustainable, to tailor to more diets, to do all that sort of stuff. And then also, you know, a place like Thrive Market that actually, you know, has a mission that is doing work yourselves. Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so again, the, the mission is, the mission has fundamentally been around, around access. You know, we believe that our role is to knock down all the barriers that exist in a consumer's way on their journey to live a, a healthier, more, more sustainable life. And there's, there's three, three core pillars that we feel have historically prevented people from making that journey. And it boils down to, to price, geography, and information. So you know, hitting on price, historically, natural organic products have sold at a premium compared to conventional, more processed equivalents, which which is interesting if you sort of zoom out of it, it makes no sense that a product that has less ingredients and involves less manipulation of the product is actually more expensive to, to bring to market, but, but so it goes. And you know, if you look at a kind of a traditional health food grocer like Whole Foods, it's usually only been accessible to you know, call it the top, top three to 5% of the, the population from, a, from an income perspective. So our role when it comes to price is really bringing the healthier, organic, less processed, ethical version of the product to market at a price point that is comparable to a conventional equivalent and at a significant price advantage to, uh, to full retail. So that's, that's step one. Step two is, is geography. So depending on where you are, there may be amazing access to health food products or they may not. If you're, you know, if you're living in San Francisco or we're fortunate enough to be in the west side of LA here where healthy living and, and natural products are, are so ingrained into the day-to-day and, and access is not, geographic access is not a real problem. However, if we look at our, our customer base, you know, about half of them are in the Midwest and the Southeast, which are you know, sort of traditionally regarded as health food deserts. You, know, you look across the country and you've got tens of millions of Americans who live in food deserts where they have to commute more than 10 miles to get to any kind of healthy grocery store. Our model is all about being able to hit every household in the U.S. You know, we ship through national and regional carriers so that even if you don't have local options, and especially if you don't have local options, we have the ability to provide our consumers direct access to this, this catalog of product in a convenient way. And the last, the last barrier is information. So even if you can afford the product, even if you are situated geographically in a way that it's easy for you to you know, get to a store, get the, get the product in your hands, not everyone has either the educational foundation or kind of the cultural, the cultural foundation to make, make those healthy choices in an intuitive way. So our role there is to be a trusted guide and just introduce people to these categories of products and help them understand the advantages of natural organic in a way that is you know, easy to understand, friendly, not preachy. And that's, that's been a big commitment from the beginning is to pair the utilitarian commerce with as much content and education as we can, we can generate alongside so that it's not an intimidating journey. It really is easy. And what we try to do is position ourselves in a way where if you trust Thrive Market, the brand, we'll make a lot of this decision making easier for you as the consumer. And by virtue of the, the membership, we, we guarantee a really high level of service. So there's, there's low risk for someone going in. 
And so checking out the website here before we we hopped on, you know, you're looking at 60 bucks, uh, under 60 bucks for an annual membership, you know, similar to like what, what you do with something like Costco. Seems like, you know, you get a free gift, you get this stuff, seems like it's a no brainer. Plus you get access to all this stuff. Sell our listeners a little bit on on why why should they should become a member because it seems pretty pretty clear to me. Yeah, and I think it's similar to those touchstone businesses, right? It's overwhelming value. So the reason Costco members are so passionate about their membership is you know you go into Costco and you you save you save hundreds of dollars over the course of your membership, so you you renew. Our dynamic is essentially the same. So again, from a strict price point of view, our average member makes back their membership fee in under you know just around two orders on the on the site today or the app. So you imagine, you know, the number of grocery trips you'll run over a course of a year, our average member is making back a very significant multiple on, on what they paid in to be Thrive Market member over the course of their, their annual membership. And that's just the price component, right? When you kind of add in the convenience of not having to go to the grocery store for any one of the product categories that we, we carry, the convenience of not having to research ingredients on your own to go kind of read the nutrition label and, you know, compare 30 different almond butters that you'll find on a storefront, even at a, even at a more curated grocery store, like Whole Foods, for example, the fact that, you know, we've really done a lot of the heavy lifting so that the, the cognitive load on, on customers is, is as low as possible. And they can trust us to make sure that We've brought the highest standards in terms of which products we'll put on our on our shelf compared to any other retailer out there. And third, it's the 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 positive social impact. So, you know, for every membership we we sell to a paying customer, we offer one for free as part of our Thrive Gives program to a low income family or student teacher, someone who's essentially in need, where we recognize that, you know, there are folks that we want tax as a platform for whom even the $60 is a, is a significant financial hurdle. So we want to be able to in a position to give those memberships away for free and ensure that, you know, whoever, you know, whatever, whatever your social economic situation, you have the ability to access these healthy products, you know, beyond the free memberships we give away, we also have the ability for any customer to donate a, a portion or all of their savings at checkout which we then proceed to, to turn around and uh, provide grocery stipends and other support to the same communities um, through, the, through the gifts program. And you know, we know for a fact that this resonates because you know, our donated checkout rates are a significant multiple of what's, what's been seen in, in traditional groceries. So you know, we, are, we are attracting a consumer who's a, who's a conscious consumer, who's thinking about, thinking about utilitarian value, but also thinking, thinking more broadly. So you know, the membership we offer, if you zoom out of it, is really, you know, boils down to this incredible utility, but also a community of shared values that you get to participate in as a, as a Thrive Market member and contribute to a broader and broader range of people having access to, to healthy products. I'm doing it. I'm signing up. You convinced me. I'm, I'm ready. Yeah. Okay, let's get under the hood a little bit. I want to know, I mean, it's all the stuff I eat anyway, so I'm like, hey, man, as well. I want to get under the hood a little bit from the technology perspective. It's a super simple platform, like effortlessly simple. I'm curious, like, what do you have going on to uh, to create this type of digital experience? Yeah, so I mean, e-commerce e-commerce platforms are sort of. Uh, I mean, the best analogy I can think of is that that sort of duck on the water, where the consumer facing piece should be as simple as possible and require as little little work from the consumer as possible to to achieve their tasks and their goals. Under the hood, there's always a tremendous amount of complexity with the duck sort of paddling, paddling furiously to, to keep it all going. To give you a little bit of a preview into our tech, you know, when we originally launched the business, it was a, a monolithic application. It was based on the Magento e-commerce platform, which for those folks listening, along with Shopify, was a, one of the two leading platforms in the space you know, back, in, back in 2014 when we launched. You know, since then, you know, every aspect of that experience has been highly customized. We've moved the technology side of the house towards you know, microservices architecture on the platform side. We have dedicated client apps on, on web, iOS, and Android. You know, really heavy focus on asynchronous processing, on use of machine learning to drive personalization of the shopping experience, all those things where you know, a lot of work in the back end to create experiences that are seemingly very simple in the back end and hopefully in the front end and, and save the consumer a lot of time. From a, a team perspective, 
we organize into into software engineering. We call them pods or or squads, so uh, cross functional groups that iterate very rapidly on on different parts of the customer experience. Those pods are cross platform, so we're able to roll out improvements across both the web and mobile apps in a really rapid fashion in lockstep. And part of that's because, as you'll sort of discover over the course of your journey at Thrive, hopefully, you know our consumers are going to jump back and forth between platforms a lot. Obviously, COVID and stay at home being what it is, we probably we see a lot more, a lot more sort of desktop usage now. But historically, grocery shopping and kind of planning your groceries is something people are doing on the go. So our, our consumers are going to bounce back and forth between mobile web, desktop web, the native apps. Uh, we want to be there with our shoppers, you know, kind of wherever, whenever they are, so that if they, you know, suddenly discover that they ran out of, you know, ran out of toilet paper, ran out of mustard, they can quickly and easily add that into their basket. You know, language and technology-wise, we're pretty language agnostic at this point. There's, uh, we started off with Magento as a PHP shop. Now, obviously, the, the client-side apps are built in Swift, Kotlin, we're React.js on the front end. The platform and services are you know, written in, in everything from, from Python to Java to, to Golang. Still a lot of PHP in there as well. We're mostly cloud-based. You know, we have on-prem infrastructure in place across our fulfillment network for, to drive our, the hardware automation or fulfillment centers, but we're primarily a cloud, cloud consumer. So that's a, I mean, that's a very sort of high-level overview of the platform. Happy to, happy to obviously dive into any areas that, that are of particular interest. Yeah, I mean, so kind of obviously a newer company, uh, you know, started not too long ago. Was this just a pretty obvious decision for you to go mostly cloud? Yeah, I think, you know, if you sort of think back to, I think it's what, about 2006, 2007, when, when AWS first hit the market. I mean, it was such a step function change in terms of the speed with which you could get a, a product in front of customers, right? It took an entire job function in terms of managing managing server hardware and data centers and, and so on and, and abstracted it out. But it was, so it was uh, definitely a no-brainer for us. Now, there are certain areas where we need, we need on-premise hardware just from a technology perspective. So to give you, give you some insight, we have hardware-based automation. So this is conveyance, sortation, kind of those, those big belts that you see when you look at a, a fulfillment warehouse that run inside our fulfillment centers. For that hardware to operate at the right speed, uh, we have a piece of software called a warehouse control system that has, I think it's something in the range of four millisecond latency requirements, which unfortunately the cloud is, is going to have a hard time supporting in a reliable way. So we have, we have hardware inside the facilities to run a select amount of software where we have this, this, spe- this very specialized technical need. Barring that, having everything in the cloud makes total sense for us. You know, we're a, we're a globally distributed technology organization, particularly now that, you know, since your entire team is, is working from home, you know, not having, not having physical hardware that we need to, need to access and the ability to, to manage as much of our, as much of our destiny through, through configuration as possible is, is absolutely the way I think any, any earlier growth stage business should be going and probably any enterprise as well. Switching gears to the employee side of the house, the employee experience, how are you building all of your team's infrastructure? How do you think about uh, you know, creating an awesome employee experience? How do you think about buying technology? Yeah, so I think uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot there. And it's been, it's been interesting over the, the past few months, putting some of those decisions to the, the test. One of the first principles is, is standardization of systems. So I think we have about 180 people in our corporate office uh, or in corporate roles, having them work on the smallest number of systems possible, both from a learning curve perspective and then also from a, from a consistency experience perspective. So to give you a point of view, for example, we've gone from, you know, when it was less managed from three or four or five project management systems that were sort of homegrown within individual departments to standardizing or on, on one or two. We've gone from, File shares uh, being on, you know, Dropbox, Nbox, and Google Drive, and a few others to, to standardizing on usage drive. And I think as a, a business, a business scales, at some point, it's really important to put some stakes in the ground so that everyone's on the same page. So that when it comes to onboarding, documentation, IT support, just the ongoing ability to manage manage people's workflows. 
there's again sort of less less decision points and less inconsistency. The second piece is you know leveraging best of breed tools. So you know one of the one of the sort of fortuitous examples for us is you know we onboarded we onboarded Zoom and started to really started really lean into the use of use Zoom to drive meetings several months before everyone had to work from home for for COVID. So we already had a little bit of a head start on the technology side building a digital sort of a more virtualized working culture as opposed to having to learn uh, in, a, in a very, very accelerated time frame whenever needed to leave the office. And then finally, when it comes to build versus buy, I think the key thing is, and this is applicable for both the internal side of the house and the consumer facing side of the house. Uh, this is one of the lessons that I really learned between companies was, you know, focus your build resources on key points of differentiation and buy everything else you can within, you know, within reason and budget, obviously. So like uh, sort of the most, the most impactful example that I can remember on that was we launched Thrive Market on, a, on an open source e-commerce platform. We didn't, strictly speaking, buy it, which is a free, a free edition at the time. But, uh, you know, my, my first business, there was, there was sort of enough specialization there that I made the decision to build from scratch. And that was, you know, in, in hindsight, you know, maybe the right decision, maybe not, but it certainly made a huge difference in terms of it took me nine months to get our, our first product from sort of uh, pen and paper to, to full launch at Thrive Market. We got there in, I think it was six to eight weeks, including setting up a warehouse and all the other infrastructure that goes into business. So, you know, being able to leverage out everything out there, not reinventing the wheel, you know, really being rigorous about use of resources to, to build only the the pieces you you really really need, which are, you know, custom to your business, key points of differentiation, you know, something that you really want to be defensible from an IT perspective or from a from a business perspective. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, the the, the speed to speed to market that you can go now is just it really is. It puts those builder buy decisions, you know, really into perspective. Do you have like a, a like a a buying committee or like a how, how do you go about like sourcing those things? And especially for like other parts of the business as well, like getting feedback from, uh, from the other business owners or business units. Yeah, we don't have a, we don't have a formal committee. I mean, we definitely have a, a budgeting process for, I mean, IT manages a centralized software budget for the most part. I mean, there's a few pieces of software where only, only one department will use it and then it kind of sits in their queue. And it's a, it's a collaborative process between my team and, in some cases, the rest of the business, and in some cases, a you know a single department that has a has a specialized need. Where I have a head of technology operations that reports to me. His core accountability is managing all the all the enterprise apps. We're going to sit down and look at what the what the solutions are out there in the market. We'll obviously solicit a ton of feedback from you know the rest of the the rest of the executive team in terms of software that they've used in the past and been successful with. And we're going to try and find a balance between. You know, obviously the, the best solution from a kind of pure feature set cost perspective and, you know, what the, what the business will be comfortable adopting where we'll see the ROI, right? Because, you know, you can put this, you can put a, put a potentially higher quality, but more esoteric piece of software in front of people. But if adoption is low, you're not going to get the value that you're looking for. So it's, it's usually a balance. And then the, you know, the sort of contract negotiation process ensues. And the, the area that we've invested in the most is really not the process of buying the software, it's the process of onboarding the software. So yeah, sure. It's pretty easy to work with a, a sales rep and get, get a deal done. That's not usually the hard part. It's making sure that we're being rigorous once we've made that, that purchase decision. We have good buy-in from all the other key stakeholders on, on utilization. You know, we as, a, as the tech org need to go above and beyond in terms of providing Onboarding materials, education, documentation, ongoing support, you know, we'll usually kind of beta test internal software rollouts within the, either the whole tech team or parts of the tech team, because, you know, folks are just a little, a little bit more digitally native and, and willing to play around with, with new tools. So really going, uh, investing as heavily as possible and making sure that we, we ensure not just that we're picking the right tools, but we're ensuring the organizational success on those tools. You know, it's not a, it's not sort of a once and done thing. It, it requires you know, a lot of a lot of practice and repetition, and you know, a little bit of kind of playing bad cop and holding people accountable, but really mostly being there in a in a supporting capacity to make sure that people can get on board and get their their questions and problems sorted out easily. 
you mentioned a little bit some of those uh, those early learnings from having started previous companies, being able to figure out like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't build this thing or or whatever it is. So I'm curious whether it's you know from your time at Microsoft or or earlier or your your startup time, is there anything that really like helped inform some of the decision making you have now as as CTO? Yeah, I spent, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. So this is actually uh, one of the one of the most fun parts of my job. And kind of looking back at the past 10, 15 years of my career has been the the constant ability to to learn and encounter new problems and you know make make new mistakes and learn from old ones. I think the first set of learnings were really coming from you know large scale software development at Microsoft down to you know literally kind of blank slate at a as co-founder at my my first startup. And there, I was really in a position to lean very heavily in a lot of the, a lot of the best practices I learned in terms of software development. So, like ultimately, I think big companies can be an awesome training ground for anyone who wants to go lead technology from the inception of a business. I think it really instills into you the right best practices when it comes to building for scale, really high commitment to quality, rigorous hiring, repeatable process, which are all things that sort of. I think are undervalued at, at startups and, and in some cases, rightfully so, but often, you know, being able to bring the right mix of structure and flexibility to those early years of a, a company, having seen it done at real scale, but then sort of confronted with the reality of having no resources and, and really quick timelines, sets a good balance. On the flip side, you know, lots of, there's lots of change as well, right? Ultimately, you know, you come down to a world where you have to start thinking about everything versus just thinking about your function. So like great examples in hiring. So, you know, I must've interviewed well over, you know, well over a hundred candidates, 200 candidates in my time at Microsoft. And I never once thought about a hiring budget. I just thought about hiring the, the smartest technologists that, uh, that we could place into the business. And when you're, when you're doing that at a startup, you're, you're confronted with a variety of other constraints, right? Like, you know, what's the, how many people can I hire? What can I afford to pay them? Are they going to be a good cultural fit for a startup versus just being the kind of the smartest person in the room? Where am I going to source them from? It sort of goes, goes on and on. So definitely, definitely broaden my thinking as, as I started to progress as a, an early stage CTO. The other big thing that was, was evolutionary that didn't really come from kind of the big company world, particularly Microsoft, where you have very, very long ship cycles is, you know, really thinking in terms of tangible milestones for your business and being, you know, we sort of use the term internally still being really ruthless when it comes to prioritization and being willing to make the right compromises to hit those, hit those milestones. So, you know, when you're in the very early stages of a business, it's great to have a North Star vision as to where you want to be three years from now, five years from now. It's probably 10 times more important to be able to walk backwards in that vision and be able to chart a course that de-risks you getting there over the next, you know, week, month, quarter. Because in the in the early days, like those are really the timeframes when there's, you know, there's the business is still at existential risk at all times until you can prove out the next set of next set of hypotheses, so you can you can get out there and scale. At a personal level, the you know sort of one of the biggest learnings was on this idea of intrinsic motivation. So and I, and I faced this in a in a pretty tough way the first kind of few weeks, I'd say, at my first startup was. When you're in a big company, you know, almost whatever role you're in, like you're kind of on, you're on the tracks, right? You're on the rails. Like you come in, you have a routine, you've got expectations, like your, your workday is well organized just by virtue of being in that environment and being part of a bigger team. You're employee number one at a company, you know, you really have to drive yourself and you got to figure out, you know, what's your, what's your pace? What are you going to focus on next? You know, have a much higher sense of ownership and be much more organized than you would necessarily at a at a big enterprise. So those are all learnings coming from big company to small company. And then kind of thinking through the the second piece of it, which is, you know, having been through two two startup companies now, you know, a lot of a lot of interesting common themes have come up that that I had a chance to reflect on. And like the first one of those is pick good business partners. You know, again, you know, two companies in a row, like at the stage I joined, it was literally the co-founding team and my PowerPoint deck that represented what we wanted to get done for the next five to seven years. So, you know, it's really a bet on people. And the first time around, I was very fortunate. I got the chance to work with someone that I had in a prior history with. We'd known each other for for almost 10 years before we got into business together. So there's a very high level of 
of trust there, both at a personal level and also at a professional level. You know, when I came to look for my my co-founders at Thrive Market, I was I was definitely trying to be as strategic as possible and make sure that I was, I was focusing on partnering up with folks who were experienced entrepreneurs, had seen seen success in the past, kind of knew what they were doing in the space. Ultimately, a lot of it just comes down to the human dynamic and your ability to feel like these are the right people to be with during good times, but also during bad times. Like, can you spend 16 hours a day with this group, you know, for weeks, months, years on end as you, as you build out a business and, and go through this journey together? So feel very, very fortunate there. The second piece, and again, this is, this is not technology specific, it's been a good business model. So ultimately, you know, my role as CTO or any, any technologist out there can have an enormous influence on the, on the success or failure of an enterprise. But I don't really believe you can take user experience or tech and kind of outwork a model that fundamentally doesn't work, right? So, you know, you've got to think about the market size. You've got to think about the unit economics. And one of the things that made Thrive Market really attractive as I went down this, this analysis was this idea of sort of stacking up what I call unfair competitive advantages from an early, very early stage. You know, for us, that boiled down to, you know, already having some really amazing team members that are joined the company pre-launch, already having the support of an entire ecosystem of health and wellness influencers that were investors in the in the early stage of the business and just standing by and ready to, ready to promote us to their, their audiences. Having you know, the right unit economics based on the membership model so that we could scale in a, in a sustainable way. So all these were, were considerations that were very much top of mind going into my second business that I think anyone, anyone considering this journey should definitely, definitely should think very, very seriously about. When it comes down to the, the tech side, I think it's I've sort of had big success in those. I've definitely made a lot of mistakes in this area, but definitely build for both scale and sustainability. The thing that I think people uh, underestimate is how long your code will be running. If you're lucky enough and your business continues to scale, you know, we've been, we're still looking at parts of the product today more than six years in where, you know, there's stuff that was written pre-launch in 2014 that is, you know, that it could be standing up, you know, seven, eight, nine figure revenue streams to the business. And obviously, you know, we're refactoring and removing a lot of that technical debt. But, you know, again, if I were to, if I were to go back through this process again, uh, I think we were more, more rigorous at Thrive Market than I was in my last business. I'd be even more rigorous making sure that I'm building a, a solid foundation, even if, it's, even if it's a little bit more expensive upfront in terms of user resources, because uh, I think the, the long-term dividends of that investment in quality, I think will always pay off, both in terms of just business performance, total cost of ownership of the software, and I think most importantly, setting the, setting the right culture for, for the team from day one. And that's sort of the, that's the last piece, right, is, is a real investment in, in culture and values from, from the very early days of the business. And at Thrive, we've been really fortunate because by virtue of being a mission-driven company, there's already a, a very strong unifying factor that draws people to this organization and, and keeps them aligned. But as leaders, uh, and this is sort of when I think about my role as co-founder versus my role as you know, CTO or, or head of technology or product or whatever, it's really making sure that we, we codify our culture and values, incorporate it into our day-to-day, you know, get to a point and maintain that point where everyone in the company is incredibly aligned in terms of not just what our objectives and our mission are, but how, you know, how we choose to operate in our path to getting there, what, data, what do day-to-day decisions look like, what do day-to-day behaviors look like. And having that feel really consistent from one team to the next and one, one decision and situation to the next, that cohesiveness is, is really valuable as the company scales. Because it's really easy to get that right when you're just uh, you know, 10 people sitting in a room and everyone's just by virtue of the, the small scale incredibly aligned. You start to scale the organization out, the level of complexity grows, you start to hire faster. Having that, that incredibly strong cultural foundation is what keeps the business marching to a single beat year after year after year. So sorry to, sorry to ramble on there, but, uh, but I, had, I had a lot of thoughts on this from a variety of angles. Yeah, no, that was awesome. Uh, and it's, it, there's so many different things, you know, to take away from that. But I think the blending of, you know, going from a big company to a small company and then turning the small company into, into a mid-sized company and, and hopefully bigger is, uh, is a crazy roller coaster for for anybody to go on, and you know the org is going to shift, you know, each step along the way. 
I forget who we were talking to, but someone was talking, one of the founders was talking about how the moment when they didn't know every single employee's name, right? And they're like, this is crazy that I don't know, you know, every single person, but, uh, you know, but that, that size happens. And I think it's, uh, I mean, the nice thing is one of those sort of piece of learning is, you know, I think if you invest in, in hiring the right top talent early, and as a leader, you have the ability to get, to delegate and get leverage, you know, as, as founders and as, as senior leaders in any business, I think having that, having that good balance between how much time we spend on, on business strategy, how much time we spend on execution, and how much time we spend on people is really important. So, and I've gone through different phases of this where sometimes I'm so in the weeds that that exact thing happens. Like I kind of put my head up and I see, I see someone that I, that I don't recognize or multiple people I don't recognize. And I do feel to some degree, I mean, past certain scales unavoidable, but you know, we definitely want to be in a position where we're building those human connections and that relational fiber and being really intentional about it. And some of that is making sure that you, you carve out the time in your day to do it. A lot of it's also been driven through, through organizational process. So for example, we do what are called Friday lunches at Thrive Now. We've been doing them for, I think, a year, year and a half. And it's essentially all the leaders in the, in the org split up and are essentially randomly assigned to very small groups of, of folks just to, just to break break bread and uh, get to know each other and, you know, talk about, talk not just about what, what their sort of roles and functions and challenges and so on are, but really get to know each other at a personal level. So I think it is, again, from a cultural standpoint, really important for companies to be intentional in setting up, again, process, uh, for lack of a better word, to, to facilitate that human connection. Because I think it may feel like it's an hour out of everyone's day, but you kind of stack up the, the improved context that people build over time the ability to know someone's name and be willing to ask them a hard question that you may not have may not have felt comfortable doing otherwise, I think it does translate not immediately, but over the long term into into both sort of happier, more engaged employees, but just equally importantly, better business results. So again, that's uh that's something that we've we've really leaned into as leaders in the organization. And we're we're nowhere near perfect, but it's an area we're gonna keep investing as much as possible. So I'm curious about the future of, of home shopping. As I mentioned, I literally checked out out of Thrive Market here. I have $50 worth of snacks coming my way, free shipping, literally since we've been on this call. This isn't even a paid plug. I, just, I was just like, this is great um, while we were sitting here uh, chatting on the podcast. So it seems like delivery services like Thrive Market are, are clearly going to be you know, the new normal. I think a lot of people experience that with like, you know, the rise of COVID and not being able to go out of their house all the time. If they've never done a box of the month or something like that, maybe they tried it. So, you know, what is the future of home shopping? What is the blend of in-person versus uh, versus at home? I think it's, uh, I mean, we're definitely in a very interesting time, particularly in, in our category. So, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned COVID. So one of the one of the interesting side effects that's occurred over the past few months is this incredibly rapid habit formation around the online grocery space and the online CPG space in, in general. So coming into the year, I think something like three to five percent of households had ever purchased a grocery product online. You know, fast forward three or four months, and that number is now, I believe, in the thirty to fifty percent range. And the interesting thing is that you know all the all the data and the customer feedback suggests that if retailers and brands are able to provide a high quality customer experience on that online channel, the customers are willing to form a, a new habit versus going back to only buying in brick and mortar. In terms of kind of where the onset, that's you know obviously you know good news, good news for our business and, and symptomatic of of a broader change to come. And this is reflected in a lot of the financial projections for how how far that that industry is going to grow when it comes to online grocery. When it comes to what's actually going to change, how things are going to evolve. So the, the historical e-commerce foundation was this sort of trinity of price, convenience, and assortment, right? So those are, those are the pillars of utilitarian value. I don't think they're going away anytime soon. But I think what we've seen and, and what is at the crux of our strategy is that the way consumers approach their relationship with a retailer has changed and the way they look, look at those pillars and what their, their expectations are. So if you think about if you think about assortment, for example, the kind of 
Gen 1 e-commerce was really about uh, having as much choice as possible and having access to every product under the, under the sun. You know, now consumers are, are faced with the, the tyranny of choice if they haven't gone through that and are really looking for someone who can, you know, you've got a lot more curated experiences out there that, you know, help cut through the noise and help be, be active partners in, in helping consumers select the right products. There's also this idea of being able to, to browse and search and find something versus a more elevated discovery experience where you know, consumers want the brands they're interacting with to help, help introduce them to new products that they wouldn't have been aware of before. And this is really you know, from Thrive's perspective where you know, being a hub where innovative new brands can launch, launch products and get, a, uh, get exposure to a large, you know, extremely, uh, extremely high quality audience. But also leaning into leaning into content and education, so that when you find something unfamiliar, we can help you help you understand how to contextualize that in your life, and we can actually find products that you haven't discovered based on your your shopping behaviors, your declared you know, dietary and lifestyle preferences that that you haven't actually had a chance to to experience before. So, you know, again, having that having that retail relationship be be more active and be more one of trust, you know. Convenience is yeah, sort of your your very impressive multitasking. Have been able to build a build an order uh, on the fly is is very much symptomatic. It took two seconds, yeah. and that's how people shop now, right? So it's uh, it's not that you sit down, you have a dedicated session, you you know look at it like writing an essay. You're you're shopping on the go, and for us, you know, it means we have to be mobile first. Um, like any retailer is facing this, uh, you know, well over half our revenue now comes on comes on the phone. And particularly in the grocery space, you know, we want to be integrated in people's natural habits. So when you think about technologies like voice assist, IoT uh, in the future, being able to connect with our customers on the go, in their kitchens, wherever they may be, in the most natural way possible. So that, again, we, we lower that friction and just make it as, as easy and convenient and low touch as possible to get, get what, we, what they needed in their hands. You know, the, the rapid adoption of subscription services is another, another phenomenon in this area, right? Where, you know, people find a, a product that they like and they're able to form a habit around and they're much more comfortable today than they were, you know, five or 10 years ago participating in a, you know, an auto ship program or subscription driven kind of recurring, recurring shipment program. But then more, more than ever, you know, I think they also want an experience that's personalized and, and tailored to them, right? So whether you think about subscription or the kinds of products that we're, we're introducing for product discovery, you know, it's really important down the line for retailers to know their customers' needs and not, not speak to them in kind of a one-size-fits-all, tone-deaf manner, but rather you know, really honor the, the consumer's motivation and create a one-to-one shopping journey for them. This is an area that we've, we've invested in really heavily, both from a user experience standpoint, a data science and, and data strategy standpoint. So, you know, all our marketing communications, a lot of um, our customer experience now is, you know, is reactive and takes into account both the implicit and explicit signals that the consumer is giving us in terms of the, the product categories, the brands, the you know, dietary and lifestyle values, the specific products, and the, the timelines with which they want those products. And we use all those data inputs to create you know, these experiences that, again, hopefully look and feel really simple and really personal but ideally get the right message to the right consumer at the right time versus, versus just washing everyone in a kind of a sea of relatively irrelevant information. I think the final piece is, is, is community, right? So people, I don't think people want to feel isolated and ha- think of these conversations with, with brands as kind of one directional where brand kind of just markets to a consumer. So I think membership really becomes a, really becomes a shared identity where we want to be having conversations with our, our consumers about the products, about a lot of the, the other topics that are sort of highly relevant to their experiences. We're also seeing in this space that source of authority has really changed from kind of the traditional health advocacy towards much more of an influencer, micro-influencer based system where you know, these are folks, again, who have direct bi-directional conversations with their consumers. And what we've seen a lot of success with is incorporating those influencers as, as thought leaders to help evangelize, evangelize businesses like ours. So, you know, to kind of zoom out of all of it, I think the consumer is becoming more conscious. They're becoming more selective in terms of who they, they want to interact with as a brand. And that interaction is deepening in a, what I feel is a really, really positive way. So, and there are a lot of 
companies out there doing absolutely amazing things, both in the grocery space and others to, to capitalize on this. And, you know, we, we certainly hope to be a lasting part of that, that ecosystem. All right, let's get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. Just like the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience, go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more. Lightning round questions. Sasha, are you ready? Sure, go for it. Number one, what hobby or habit have you picked up in shelter in place? I've started to cook a lot more. So that's definitely been one of the one of the positive externalities of being at home all the time is uh, you know I'm getting getting full use out of my kitchen. Ironically, my my fitness regime is also picked up by virtue of having not that many things to do other than uh, stay at home and work out. Do you have a favorite book or podcast or TV show that you've been binging? Uh, I've been watching. I'm on season three of Peaky Blinders right now. I don't watch a whole lot of TV, but that one's really uh, really sucked me in. My business partner also watched No TV, so when he recommended it, I thought this is definitely something worth considering. So, so enjoyed a enjoyed a couple of seasons of that. If you weren't a CTO, what do you think you'd be doing? That's a that's a, that's a really interesting one. Probably traveling. I think that that was one of the things outside of work that I enjoyed the most pre shelter in place. So, you know, definitely looking looking forward to just spending more time just discovering the world. Best advice for a first time CTO? Um, one thing is believe in yourself. Like as an entrepreneur, you're going to be confronted with an unending number of moments of self-doubt and, and wondering whether you're the right person to be doing this now or in the future. The answer is usually yes. So I would say have confidence in yourself. The other piece of advice is get mentorship. So have a community around you that you can lean on for support. Your role is to solve all the problems. It is not reasonable for you to have the knowledge intrinsically to solve all those problems. So you know, build relationships with other folks in the technology community, really leverage all those around you to ensure you're doing everything you can to support the business. If there's one thing that I know about the tech space is that people are collaborative, people share information, people put things out there. No one, no one really holds this stuff close to the best. So there's just an incredible number of brilliant resources out there for you to, you to reach out to, to, to solve whatever it is that it, you're confronted with. Well, that's it. That's all we got for today. Sasha, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, any final thoughts? Anything to plug? No, thank you for thank you for taking the time. This was uh, this was a lot of fun. This is actually I think this is, a, this is the first one of these I've ever done. So uh, there you go. So really enjoyed the experience. Yeah, appreciate it. Take care. Awesome. Thanks. You too. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.